All right, Second Peter, let's turn there. Second Peter chapter 3. We've moved through now. Last week we began to look at chapter 3 uh, as Peter you know, finished up that warning about uh, false teachers. And hopefully uh, Zach and my sun-kissed faces from last week uh, with the uh, glare from the windshields. Uh, you were still able to, to get that uh, the importance of having a full biblical diet. Uh, as we looked at the importance of God's word, and 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 uh, you know, hopefully some of you went home and started even reading the Old Testament and and seeing all the good that is in there. But there in chapter three, he he started warning about he start, stopped warning about false teachers from chapter two. Now he's back to the themes that the letter began with, the same things that he really talked a lot about in chapter one. And we looked at how a lot of chapter three connects back to chapter one. Uh, so you might have arrows just drawn across your pages, uh, pulling back to chapter one, calling them to remember certain things. Remember these things. And what was it that he wanted them to remember? Chiefly here, starting in chapter three, it was that they would remember the predictions of the prophets and the commandments of Jesus Christ that came to them through your apostles. So those Two things. That's what he's. That's what he's reminding them to. So he's, again, he's like, remember, remember, and he's pulling them back to what? Remember what the prophet said. Remember what Christ commanded you, and that's going to then build for the rest of of chapter three. As as we read chapter three as a whole last week, we saw that flow. It's and if you wanted to have an idea of the flow, it would be sort of remember and respond, or remember and then live that what he's going to do is he's going to tell us we need to remember these certain things and then in the second half of chapter three he's going to talk about how that remembrance is is going to or at least should affect how we live remember this and now live like this or remember this and if you remember it this is how you should respond to what you've just remembered to what you've just been reminded of from the prophets and from Christ. So last week we, we looked at how the, if you wanted to break it down into four, it's pretty simple, four easy sections. Remember that the Lord's going to come. That's chapter three, verses one through seven. Remember that the Lord's timing is different from yours. That's chapter three, verses eight through 10. And then he gets into the responding to that or the living, live like the world is passing away verses 11 through 13, and then live like you're ready for the coming of the Lord. That's verses 14 through 18. So if you're just wanting to see a general breakup of chapter 3 and the flow of thought that Peter's laying out there for his people, that's what it is. Here's the two things you need to remember, and then this is how, if you remember those things, this is how that will affect your life. And so we're in that first section now. We, we really just tapped the surface of it last week. This week we're going to look all the way through verses 1 through 7, uh, and see the, the importance of, of remembering that the Lord's going to come. Uh, let's stand in the honor of reading God's word. And since we're standing, I'd ask that everyone please hold your breath. No, I'm just kidding. Let's read verses one through seven together. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder 
that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, thankful for your word, thankful for our time together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So we began to, to look last week at the importance of remembering these words from the prophets, the things that they had told them as Peter's reminding them, the prophets, the commands of Christ, this, this, this important thing that they've got to remember. And what is the first thing he wants them to remember? Remember that the Lord is going to come, okay? Remember that that is happening. The Lord is going to come, and as we'll see, judgment is coming with him. So they need to remember that. Remember the Lord is going to come. Why, why is it so essential to remember these things? Is there some, something specific in them that is going to be useful for the church? Look back at what Peter says. Why do they need to remember that the Lord is going to come? Why is it essential that they remember this? Look at verse 2. Because something else is going to come too, and that's scoffers. So verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So you need to remember what? You need to remember the predictions of Christ or the predictions of the prophets and the commands of Christ. Remember the prophets and remember the Lord how told you how to respond to the prophets. The prophets told you what was coming and Christ commanded you on how to respond to those things. So that, that's how we get kind of the structure that we've got here. That you could say the first half, the remembering, is to remember the prediction of the prophets. And the second half, the respond or the live, is how Christ then told them, commanded them uh, how to live because the predictions of the prophets were going to take place. Well, what, what, what is going to happen that they need to remember these things? Verse 3, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, that there will be those who will scoff at the idea of a final judgment. There will be those who think it's ridiculous, silly myth or superstition to think that all of humanity is one day going to face the judgment of God. So there's going to be those, even within the church, who are going to scoff at the idea of Christ's return, who will think that this judgment is ridiculous. And if these believers aren't set firmly, aren't set firmly in their knowledge of what God has said and in the faith that God keeps his word, then they might listen to the scoffers. 
If they don't remember, hey, the prophets, no, the prophets told you that this was going to happen, that the end was coming, and Christ even told you how to respond to it. If they listen to this, if they forget what the prophet said and they forget what Christ said, they might listen to the scoffers. They might go, well, okay, maybe, maybe it's not going to happen. Because you know, no one wants to be a rube, right? No one wants to be a rube. No one wants to be the dummy who believed in a, oh, I can't believe you, you think that there's going to be a final judgment, you know? Well, I don't, I mean, I don't, I didn't say that, you know, I just, maybe. But if, 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 if you are firmly set in, yeah, I believe it because the prophet said it. And Christ talked about how to respond to it. Christ talked about how to get ready for it. So unless the prophets are rubes and, the, and Christ is a rube, then yes, I believe that a final judgment is, no, no, I don't believe, I know that a final judgment is going to come. See, these church members, they're not dummies. They're not dummies. Who are the dummies? The scoffers. The scoffers are the dummies. Because look at what he says. They're not scoffing because they don't believe this stuff. The, the world's not making fun of Christians because they really don't believe in God. The world's not making fun of Christians because they don't believe that an eternal God exists. It's, it's not that they don't believe that. It's the same thing with the scoffers. Why are the scoffers scoffing? They're scoffing because they are enslaved to their sin. They are following their own sinful desires. Now, the scoffers are trying to make the Christians look like idiots here. Or the scoffers, even within the church, are trying to make those Bible-believing Christians look like idiots. I can't believe you believe that stuff. And the world does the same thing. We get out. We talk about, as you should in this time, hey, there's a virus going around. People are dying. What should we think? Yeah, you better repent or you too will perish. Like, you, death can happen to anybody. No, but seriously, what should we really think like? Let's talk about viral loads and data. Let's talk about data. I got data. Chapter 3, verse 7. You know, that sort of stuff. Uh, I've got some data. I got a lot of words of the Lord here. But the world doesn't want to talk about that, right? Like, it, if you try to talk about that, the world's like, oh, that's ridiculous. Let's talk about other things. But it's not because the world doesn't believe those things. It's not because people don't believe in God. Because God has taught them about himself. It's that people, just like these scoffers, are enslaved to their sin. They are driven by their sinful passions. They're not driven by logic, although they like to pretend like they are. These false teachers, they weren't driven by logic. They weren't driven by biblical wisdom. Even though, remember, they're coming and twisting the revelation of God. So they're coming and acting like they've got biblical wisdom. They don't believe, they don't have biblical wisdom. That's not what drives them. They're not, well, the... You know, the word of God, I'm just held captive to it. No, you're not. You're twisting the word of God because the word of God is clear. They are driven along by their sin. Look at how Jude talks about it. Jude verses 18 and 19. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. So what are they actually doing? These people that deny the coming of the Lord are actually just following their ungodly passions. They're not intelligent. They're beasts. They're beasts driven by their passions, driven by their sin. They're not listening to the prophets. They're not listening to, to, to Christ. Who they're listening to is themselves, to the passions that drive them. And he says, beware of these people. 
because these are the type of people that cause divisions in the church. Remember, these scholars are coming from within the church. And if you remember back to what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 2, where it said they come in with their destructive heresies, remember the word heresy is just not translated. The Greek word is heresy. But the word heresy means divisions, that they're bringing in their destructive divisions. And now that's the same thing that Jude said in 18 and 19, that people who deny God's word will come in even within the church and try and cause division within the church by separating people from God's word. They're not driven by real biblical desire to know God or know his word. They just want to cause division. If they can get enough people to agree with them to follow their passions, they'll feel better about themselves. And so he says, beware of these people. They're worldly people, devoid of the spirit. What is it that these end time scoffers will say? Look at verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Right, so here's what they're scoffing about. Well, if he's going to come, where's he at? What's happened? Because ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, they're saying, look, nothing is going to happen. How do we know nothing's going to happen? Because nothing has ever happened. Like, if God was going to judge, why hasn't he judged? God, things have stayed the same. God's not doing anything. They say, since the time of the fathers, referring probably, you know, just back at the beginning, maybe specifically Abraham, Isaac, uh, Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob, but basically, since the beginning, they say all things have been the same. God never does anything. What happens is because, because people live such short lives and because God is so infinitely patient, it can be easy for us in the brief time that we're here because we didn't see anything means God's not doing anything, right? Right? Because if God doesn't do something in that brief shadow that is your life, right in front of your face, and he obviously has not been active anywhere in the world ever. Because I was alive for 80 years in one spot in Oklahoma. And I didn't see it, so it must not have happened. That's what these scoffers are doing. These scoffers are saying, look, things have always been the same. But again, remember, it's not that they really believe this. As much as they love their sin so much that their sin is almost forcing them to believe this. They can't think of anything that would cause them to have to give up their love for this world. And I think that's, that's good in, in analyze, remembering how to view this world and how to view ourselves. People are driven by their affections. People are driven by what they want. Affection creates a pretty resolute faith. These people have a resolute, life-shaping belief that, that nothing bad is going to happen. Why? Because they love their sin. And so since they love their sin, they can't imagine anything bad getting rid of that. So they trust that nothing's going to happen to take that away from them. I think we need to have lives that are shaped in that same way, not by a love for sin, but by a love for God. That if our love for God is great, then our faith and our trust in him will be great as well. If they can trust in a lie and not be afraid, how is it that we can have the truth and still be riddled with anxiety and fear? If they can so believe a lie that they know is a lie, 
but believe it with all their heart so that they're not even afraid of what they know is actually going to happen, then how can we, who have the truth, not love it so much and believe it so much that it changes our life as well? How can the people believing the lie be less anxious than the people who know the truth? And don't be deceived. Peter's going to say, they're deceived. You don't be deceived. They are deceived. Don't think that the scoffers are right. Don't think that the world is correct. Peter's going to say that they're ignoring some pretty obvious problems with what they're saying. And he's going to give us a couple of examples of that, starting in verse 5. So a couple of examples of why it is that these scoffers are really the ridiculous ones and that we should really scoff at the scoffers. We should really look at them and think, well, that's just ridiculous because it is. Look at what he says in verse 5. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. In other words, for people who say God's never done anything on the earth, they're missing some pretty obvious things, right? Because they're, they're the one big obvious one. And like he says, they're, it seems that they're deliberately overlooking it. You could actually translate that a couple ways. So anyway, don't put too much focus on the deliberately part. But in a, what they're definitely doing is missing an obvious thing. They're missing something that's pretty obvious. What they're saying is God never does anything when in truth, God has been involved with creation and in creation since the beginning. So, okay, the scoffers are right. They're right when they say that nothing has changed, right? But what hasn't changed is that God has always been working in creation. So you're right, scoffers, when you say nothing has changed. But what hasn't changed is God has always been at work. He has always been at work since day, well, not since day one, since before day one. Right? Not even that he's been at work since day one. You go the day before day one, he was at work. And you see this. Look at, look at what he mentions. He talks about how the earth and everything in it is a direct result of God's work in it. We see the word of God shaping the world since the beginning. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And when you go back to Genesis 1... You actually see a lot of reference in Genesis 1 to the work of water and word. The word working in and through the water. So, for example, look at Genesis 1. We'll we'll start in verse 1 and, and read through verse 10. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of what? Of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place. Let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. So God informing the world does, as Peter says, form the world out of the water by, in many ways, by bringing the earth up through 
the water. So from day one, God has been shaping creation. So when they say God hasn't been involved, they have to be overlooking the deliberate fact that God has been involved since the start in creation. But maybe because they're driven by not logic. So like it's not like you're going to tell them that and then go, oh my goodness, you're right. And I didn't realize that. Now I've totally changed my belief. The judgment is coming. Uh, what are they going to say? Okay, okay, okay. I'll give you that he was at work in the beginning. But since the beginning, right? After that, he hasn't done anything. And that's what Peter starts to pick up in verse 6. So look at what he says. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So again, they might say, okay, maybe he was at work at the beginning, but not anymore, right? He was at work in those first six days, but then on the seventh day he rested, and then that rest has just continued. But Peter says, yes, God did form the world out of water and word, but he wasn't done. He continued to work in the world, including judging the world for wickedness. So they're specifically saying that Christ isn't going to come and bring judgment. And it's not going to happen. And, the, and Peter, I say, not only are you wrong to think that, that, that God isn't at work in the world, you're wrong to think that God won't do that because he already has once. He's already brought judgment on the world for wickedness. Because in verse 6, he says that that same water and word that formed the earth was then used by God to judge it. And the earth was deluged with water and perished. He, he's, of course, talking about what event here? What event? The flood, right? He's talking about the flood here. That, that, that God judged the world through the flood. That that was a judgment for wickedness. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he'd made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But now, now drop down to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. It's all giving us why he does this. He was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence and the Lord saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth and God said to Noah I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them behold I will destroy them with the earth so here in Genesis 6 we see that it was the great wickedness of man the fact that that humanity's heart was evil continually, was set on evil, was filled with violence that moved God to bring judgment on all of creation to the point that he says in verse 13 that he will destroy both humanity and the earth. And sweeping into that, as you saw back uh, in verse 7, animals, creeping things, birds of the air, all of it, in judgment for sin and wickedness. So how can these false teachers say that God isn't involved in creation and would never bring judgment on creation when God has already done that before? 
right? He's already done that before. So, look, God's been involved since the beginning, and he's judged the world already for wickedness, so how can you say he's not going to do it again? And so, false teachers, being as slippery as they are, what would they say to that? What could they say to the Noah story? Ah, but God said he won't do that again, right? So, I mean, Peter, through the Holy Spirit, is ready for all of these things because it would be easy for them to say, oh, yeah, yes, yes, yes. But you forgot about that God promised not to flood the world again. It's like Proverbs says about arguing with a fool, right? It's just read the book of Proverbs. Peter's like, man, you're a proverbial man, but not in a good way. You're the bad side of Proverbs right here. Uh, Because look at what he says in verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Right? What did God say? Look at, look at Genesis chapter 9, verse 13. God did say he's never going to judge the world again with water, that he will never use word and water to destroy flesh again like he did in the flood. And in fact, the rainbow was what? It was a sign, a covenant between God and creation that that would never happen again. And so the false teachers might look at Genesis 9 and say, aha, see, God's not going to judge the world. And what can, what can Peter say? Is that what God says, that he's never going to judge the world again? Is that what it says there in in Genesis 9? No. What does he say? That he will not judge the world again with what? With water. But Peter is not talking about water, is he? In verse 7, what does he say? He's not talking about water. He's talking about a flood, but not a flood of water. What's coming this time? Not water, but fire. And then all of a sudden, like, well, now I think I kind of like the water more. Like the water, the water wasn't so bad. Fire somehow sounds worse. I mean, I know it's all death, right? But some deaths sound worse than others. Uh, And notice this time, not only does he mention, you can see some differences in the judgment. One water and one that now it's fire. But you also look at the extent of the judgment. This judgment, Peter says, will be greater than the flood. Because if you remember back to Genesis 6, in verse 13, remember it said that God determined to destroy the wicked and the earth. But what does Peter say is going to happen in this judgment? That this judgment, this destruction, is is kept for whom? The heavens and the earth. Both the heavens and the earth. That this time, it's not just going to be held. This judgment is not just going to be held to the physical earthly realm the heavens and the earth are going to face this judgment and that they are being what they are being stored up for it if you remember back to chapter 2 that was the great promise that peter gave the people chapter 2 verse 9 that god knows how to save his people and to store up the wicked for judgment how to keep them under judgment and here we see that that's what is happening that that the world is being, that heaven and earth are being stored up for a day of judgment and the destruction, it says, of the ungodly. A fire that is going to purify every single inch of creation. 
Sin is a stain, not just on humanity, but on all of creation. And creation, the Bible says, knows it. Creation knows it and is actually longing for this day to come, which is what makes it interesting. That creation, which will be part of this judgment, is actually longing for this judgment to come and for sin to be undone. Uh, so you look at Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. In other words, creation itself yearns for purification. This world yearns for sin to be undone, to be set free from its own bondage, to finally set free with the children of God. But on that day, it is not just the heavens and earth that will face judgment. The ungodly will utterly and completely be destroyed. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. I mean, he said there, he waits for a, this is being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction on the, of the ungodly. What does that look like? Paul clarifies a little bit more in 2 Thessalonians. He says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in what? In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Not a normal way that people picture Jesus here, right? Don't worry, Jesus is going to come back. And he's going to come with flaming fire and destroy everyone. Like, it's like, okay, uh, that's not a normal picture. But that is the biblical picture of Christ returning as a king who does what a just king does, which is rewards the faithful servants and, and punishes the wicked, which is what a just government is supposed to do. One day that government will be here, uh, not now. Uh, verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So there's going to come this great day of judgment where the wicked are going to face a punishment of eternal destruction. Those two things normally do not go together, right? Destruction seems to imply an immediate end to something. How something can be eternally destroyed is something beyond even the grasp of our minds, but so is the justice of God. And this is going to happen away from the presence of the Lord and from his glory. Now, we know that that does not mean that God is not there, right? The idea that, that hell is just sort of the absence of God. It doesn't mean that God is not there, but that he is only there in justice and in justice with no mercy. That they will be in the presence of Christ, but only as their judge, not as their savior. So what is Peter calling the people to remember? He says, remember that the Lord is going to come and that when he comes, he is bringing judgment on the ungodly. These church people, they need to remember that. But, but this is not new information, right? He's not teaching them something new. Peter told them 
that the prophets had spoken of these things before, that they just need to remember their words, especially that the prophets told them that one day there would come a day of fiery judgment for the ungodly that will purify all of creation. So then the question for us is, well, what did the prophets say? Because that's one thing we haven't looked at yet. What did Peter tell them to do? Peter told them to remember the prophets. What have we not looked at? The prophets. That's what we're about to do right now. I held it to the end for a purpose because I think that's how, Peter would, that's how Peter's letter worked. What did he say? Remember the predictions of the prophets. So they would read Peter's letter. They would, re, he, you, they would read where he said, remember that, that, fire, that they're being stored up for fire. Remember that this destruction is coming on the ungodly. Remember that they said this. And then what did he expect the people to do? What were they supposed to do? Go and read the prophets, right? So Peter has just laid out, remember guys, the judgment is coming for the ungodly, that God is going to unleash a fiery judgment that will consume every ounce of creation, every inch of the universe. Remember that the prophets told you that was coming. And so now let's see what the prophets say. And what you're going to see is this common theme that Peter has pointed out of fiery judgment for the ungodly that is going to purify every inch of creation. And so we're going to walk through these. This is going to be like a, like a staccato gunfire of, of like looming and certain future destruction here. So you're going to read these, and I doubt any of these are going to be like your favorite verses in the Bible. Right? None of you are going to be like, oh, that's a good one, the part where they melt. I like that part. Uh, but we need to remember that this is coming. And we'll talk about why that's important in just a second. But look at what he says. Look at all of what the prophets say. Let's start in Daniel chapter 7. Why wouldn't you start in Daniel, right? Uh, let's start in Daniel chapter 7. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. How about Psalm 50? So, I mean, what a, what a picture, right? This fiery judgment that is going to take place as the books are opened. Psalm 50, verses 1 through 4 the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silent. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. How about Psalm 21, verses 8 and 9? Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. This is talking about God. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. Nahum chapter 1 verses 2 through 6. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. 
He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Malachi chapter 4 verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither root nor branch. Isaiah chapter 2, 8 through 10. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. Isaiah 13, 10 through 13. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place and the wrath of the Lord of hosts at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Isaiah 24, 19 through 22. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth. On the earth, they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days, they will be punished. Isaiah 66, 15 through 16. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Zephaniah 1, 17 through 18. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they've sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Zephaniah 3, verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth will be consumed. Well, that's something, right? And that's just some of it. I had to edit it. I had to take stuff out. But what do all those have in common? They're, none of, they're not all saying different things, right? What did they all... They all had the same thing that Peter said. 
that God said that fiery judgment is going to consume all of creation one day and that one of the primary purposes of that or the primary purpose is the total and complete destruction of sin and sinners. And Peter tells the church, remember that this is going to happen, that God is going to come and judgment with him, that the king, when Christ returns, he's going to return and judgment is going to be with him. He is going to reveal himself, stealing the title of the book of Revelation, he is going to reveal himself for who he is. And he's going to come to judge whom? Sinners. And what are we? Sinners. I mean, this is why that passage in Romans 3.23 is so scary, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, when, when the Jews were reading that, they were reading it in light of all that they knew that would be required in the judgment that God's going to come and he's going to destroy everyone, but only those who don't match his holy perfection. And we're reading that and going, okay, all right. Well, that's something. So how can we read? How can, how can the church, how can Peter tell the church, go back and remember this? And how can we read those? How could you not stand up halfway through and say, stop, please don't read anymore. Why did none of you get up and walk out of the room? I can't take it. God says that's what's going to happen to the wicked. I know me. I know my life. I know what I've done. I know what I did this morning before I came here. I know these things about myself. I know which camp I would fall in in that judgment. So how is it that we're all here? How is it that we're all remembering? How is it that we're all not longing to pull the mountains on top of ourselves to cover us from the eyes of the Lord? What hope can we have? Only one hope, right? Christ. This is, you may not understand this, but this is what makes Christ so important for your life. I mean, I, there were years before I even realized that this was part of what was so great about my salvation. Because I'd kind of grown up in this idea that you know, God was just sort of happy with everyone. And when you become a Christian, he somehow like comes, makes himself more happy with you, you know, something like that. But what does the Bible tell us about what Christ does for us? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, what does it say about the work of Christ? That it is Jesus who delivers us, what, from our sins? No, that's not what it says. I mean, it says that in other verses, but that's not what it says here. 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, it is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's why you're not going to face the wrath, because of Christ. That's the only reason that you don't tear those verses out of your Bible. That's the only reason that you didn't just stand up and go running out of this room. Thinking, do you know what's coming for me? How about Romans chapter 5, verse 9? Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from what? From the wrath of God. Romans 8, 1 through 4, we know this now. We know the start of it. We know there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but without that whole glut of prophetic wisdom behind it that verse means little to nothing because we don't expect god to condemn anybody anyway but when we have grown up 
reading the Old Testament, and when you've been in your Bibles, like those people would have been, and knowing what would have happened, what would you have done when you read, or if, if you just read Romans 1 through 7, right? To have him say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin. How? In the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is what the righteous requirement of the law. How can you ever meet it? You can't on your own. But in Christ, this is why it's so important to be found in Christ, that in Christ, that righteous requirement that moves you from the fireside, that moves you from the condemnation side to a side of hope and grace and rescue. It is the blood of Christ that does that. It is Christ. It is the only reason that we can read those passages and not weep for what our future is. So church, no. It is, Peter is telling him, look, you need to know that condemnation is coming. That the wicked will be swept up and swept away. Consumed by God's wrath. But you also need to know that thanks to the grace of Christ, it is not coming for you. That your condemnation has been paid. Your judgment has already come, paid in Christ and paid in full. So that in 1 Thessalonians, that passage where we just read about Christ coming with this, that flaming sword, later in 1 Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul will say, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live for him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Look, the, fa the false teachers are right. Things will stay how they've always been. But they've always been God at work in his creation leading up to a final day of fiery judgment that will sweep across every square inch of the universe and for whom there have, has ever and always only been one hope, salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. We need to remember that. We need to remember that for our sakes. We need to remember that for our church's sake. We need to remember that sure judgment for the sake of those we love who do not yet know Christ, that there is no out for them, that there is no square inch in all of the universe. They could flee the earth. Like right now, like if a flood came on the earth, like if God sent a flood like in Noah's day, what would we do? Right? We'd jump on there with Elon Musk and shoot off to the sky right, on our battery-operated rockets and, you know, go to wherever and let the earth flood. We're fine. But, but not with this fire. This fire is going to consume every square centimeter of creation and judge every ounce of sin in it until the whole thing is pure. 
we need to be confident that that is going to, to happen. We need to be certain, maybe not confident as much as certain, that that is going to happen. And we need to, we need to, we need to live as if we really believe that is going to happen. And we're going to see what that looks like, not next week, but the week after that. But right now, let's take a time and let's pray. You know what? Our world is a world that scoffs at the idea of judgment for anybody, right? Let's make sure that we're a people who are believing the words of the prophets and the commandments of Christ. Let's remember that judgment is going to come and that will shape how we live. Let's take a time to pray. The first thing I want you to pray is just pray that God would remind you that judgment is real. That it is coming. And, and I can't tell you exactly how that's going to affect you, but it will affect each of us in different ways, whether it's that your confidence has not been as much in Christ as it needs to be. Maybe you've thought, well, I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a pretty decent person. I mean, not, 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 not in comparison to what God has talked about here. Maybe you need to be reminded of just how necessary Christ is for your hope. And so it, you're not going to make it because you're okay. You're going to make it because Christ has redeemed you. Because as Paul said in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, you are not destined for wrath by the grace of God in Christ. And so, so pray that you would remember that judgment would have been coming for you. Not, not for them, not for those people. It would have been coming for you if it weren't for God's grace. Pray that you would cherish Christ for rescuing you from that wrath. Take a moment and just tell Christ how amazing his salvation is. That it could save someone as wretchedly sinful as you. And that all of those verses that should have been about you aren't. That the fire that should have come for you isn't going to come for you now. Because of the work of Christ. Because your penalty has been paid. Nailed to the cross. God, I pray that in a world that doubts that judgment is coming, that, Father, we would remember that you have been very consistent in your word to say that, yes, it is, that sin will not go unpunished because you are a just God. And, Father, we are so thankful that you are gracious as well as just, and we sit in that grace. But Father, may we never forget what was going to come for us and what will one day come for others. May we proclaim the only hope that this world has, hope in Christ. May we believe, may we actually believe that that judgment is coming for our friends and our neighbors and sometimes our family members 
And Father, oh, how that would change all of our conversations. Father, may we preach Christ because he indeed is our only hope. It's in his name we pray. Amen.